Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Ben Jones is a single 38-year-old truck driver on the verge of losing his small trucking company. Ben's route takes him back and forth across one of the most desolate and beautiful regions of the Utah desert, where he meets a mysterious cellist and the embittered owner of a small diner. That's the plot in brief of James Anderson's debut novel, The Never Open Desert Diner. James Anderson was born in Seattle, raised in Oregon and the Pacific Northwest. Uh, for many years, he worked in book publishing. Other jobs have included logging, commercial fishing, and briefly truck driver. Currently divides his time between Ashland, Oregon, and the Four Corners region of the American Southwest. Tomorrow evening at 7, he'll read from and sign his book at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. He's our guest for the hour today. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, so, uh, as I understand it, you uh, many years in book publishing, a, a well-respected, um, uh, you know, small uh, publishing house. Uh-huh. Um, what, what led you to, uh, to to want to publish your your first novel? At uh, I think you're in your early sixties. I am. I just turned sixty-three a week or so ago. Uh, well, you know, I've always written. Um, I finished my first novel when I was sixteen, um, which is probably part of the reason I was up nights and part of the reason that uh, well let's just say that I wasn't the, the best student in high school mm-hmm. um, and uh, I continued to write but then I started my publishing company when I was just 22 and I ran that for a little over 20 years so I continued to write but it just didn't seem I just I, I thought that the work that I was doing as a publisher was really more important than the work uh I was doing as a writer, and I just didn't didn't want to confuse the two worlds by trying to publish my own work. So I continued to write, but I just didn't publish. And then I wrote this one, and this is uh, let me see, my eighth novel, uh, first so, one published. What's that? Yeah, and first one published. And first one published. Yeah, yeah. it's the yeah. first one I actually sent out to see if I could get it published, and. Uh, I got lucky. <laughs> what can I say? Yeah, you're getting you're so, getting great reviews. You must be very pleased. Uh, I'm just nobody is more stunned than than I am because you know it was rejected by 20 agents and probably 10 10 to 15 um, major publishers. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm a um, gee, I'm I'm a happy guy. It's <laughs> it's just the response to the book has just been amazing. Uh, tell me about advice you got. I've been reading an, an interview you gave. Uh, advice you got. You're sixty, you know, early sixties. Uh-huh. Some some told you that's too old. They did. I I heard that a few times, mostly because people are looking, publishers and agents are looking for somebody that's going to have a career. Yeah. And gee, just to be candid about it, it was well, you know, you're sixty years old just don't think there's going to be much of a career there. Um, I don't know. They may be right. I hope not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're, they were looking for how many books there might be. And, um, you know, I, nobody can guarantee that. So the, there was that sort of, um, I don't know, I hate to call it uh, ageism, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that kind of went along with it. But, you know, I... I persevere because my personal feeling is um, it's the writing that counts. 
And when I was a publisher, I published the first book of an 80-year-old man, which was a huge success for us. You're probably, <laughs> I imagine you got some advice about that. <laughs> I did. Uh, a lot of people trying to wave me off the track. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the thing is, is I, I was I was at a reception. Uh, the name of the book that I uh, published was um, A Heaven in the Eye by Clyde Rice, which won the Western States Book Award and uh, was tremendously reviewed. And... Uh, the, a publisher said, gee, I get books from old men all the time. How come you publish one and have a hit with it? Well, I didn't think about it as a, a first book by a 80-year-old man. I thought about it as a great story with incredible writing. And that's pretty much the way I look at everything. I didn't sit down to write a mystery either. I sat down to simply write the best novel I could write. Mm. And Mr. Rice went on to publish another couple of books before he died, I believe. He did. Um, the next one out was Night Freight, which did very well, and then Nordy's Gift, which was the sequel to A Heaven in the Eye. Yeah. And, you know, and they all did, and they all did very well, and, and two of them went into paperback. Mm. So uh, why set this novel in Utah? What was the attraction there? Oh, my gosh. It's... I, I've spent a fair amount of time in Utah. I've driven across it many times over 30 years. And um, there's, there's something magical about the Utah desert, about the desert in general, but for me in particular, for the Utah desert. Uh, I've been asked many times um, in the tour and on interviews, um, is any part of this book true? Uh, and my answer is the light. Hmm. The Utah light is true. Uh, and it's, there is a, there's a fullness of nothing in the desert that brings everything that truly matters into sharp relief. And that, that captured me. And I was spending a lot of time driving around. It was a particularly difficult time in my life. And, uh, uh, in fact, the novel I had been working on was on a computer. I'd been working on a novel for between four and five years, and it was on a computer, and the computer was stolen. And wow. so as I was traveling around, I started writing The Never Open Desert Diner. And, um, you know, having a truck driver, somebody who's engaged with the weather and uh, um, the landscape, uh, as well as the people, um uh, that really appealed to me. Hmm. You you uh, were a truck driver briefly. Tell tell me about that. <laughs> well, it was very briefly. I was very young, and uh, I drove for a building supply company, um, and uh, I worked for oh about a month, um, and I was driving about ten tons of mortar and brick and so on, and. Um, I was very young, and there was a very attractive young woman to my left uh, as I was driving down the road, and, and of course, my head turned, and when my head turned back, there was a 7-Up truck stopped in the middle of the road, mm. um, and uh, a few seconds later, there, was, uh, there were building supplies uh, and 7-Up all over the road, and the owners of the supply company thought that maybe I should look for something that was, as they say, a better fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was, 
I was summarily uh, uh, fired. Um, but, you know, I, I did enjoy that job, and I have tremendous respect for, uh, for truck drivers. Yeah, truck drivers, as you say, you, uh, you've said, uh, bring us, I guess, most of our stuff. There are other modes of transportation, but, but truck trucking brings a lot of it. They they do, and and uh, you know it's a you know imagine piloting, especially for the big OTR guys, uh, piloting a seven forty seven down an alleyway with um, little creatures buzzing all around you. Uh, if you if you lose your focus, um, there's going to be tragedy. Uh, so. These guys uh, bring us everything, and, and most people on the road, including myself from time to time, you know, you've got a line of trucks, and you're going, oh, no. Uh, and uh, uh, we don't think that about how they're bringing, you know, uh, food to us, uh, clothes, um, everything, everything that we, we need. And that's, that's part of what Ben does. You know, I mean, Ben delivers to kind of desert eccentrics uh, and he brings them chili and barbed wire and um, uh, and things that that are essential to their survival out in the desert so tell me about uh, this this stretch of road the the actual I, I loved your uh, this is on the uh Sort of the disclaimers page. Never open desert diners, a work of fiction. <laughs> the geographical region of Utah where the novel is is real, though certain landmarks and highways are fictional. And so your fictional highway is Utah Route 117. There's even a map in the, yes. in the front piece. Oh, I I loved I loved doing that. I I just want to tell you a funny story. I was I was reading uh, in Boston, and. Uh, I thought it was going pretty well, and afterward, a young woman walked up to me, and she said, you know, I've been in Utah, and while you were reading, I Googled Highway 117, and she said, it's not where you say it is, right. and it's only a half mile long. That's right. So do you have a response to that? And I said, yes. Fiction. Yeah. It's fiction. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking I must have really failed with her if she spent the time not listening to me read, but but googling uh, a detail of the book. Right. Um, but there there are roads out there, um, uh, smaller ones, and there are some rail headings and so on. Uh, but I wanted a hundred mile stretch. So Ben drives a hundred miles out and back. The little town that he goes to. Uh, the former coal mining town um, is called Rock Muse. That doesn't exist either, and that's right underneath the mesa. So, uh, yes, I made that. I made that up, but it's it's real to me. Mm -hmm. What can I say? Well, I have to say, I googled it as well um, <laughs> for for, <laughs> for different. I, and I saw the map, and I, I get out to Carbon County every once in a while. Uh -huh. uh, and and I was hoping that 117 was there. I wanted to drive this. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll have to drive it in my mind. But it uh, so it you take a 191, which which really is there. Yeah. Um, and uh, after Wellington, you you 117, the fictional 117 continues east and then south. Uh, from, right. From and there. There, if you, it's not 117, and it's you know, and it's smaller, but. Uh, I think you go out towards Mounds and Horse Canyon and and out towards the 
the Mesa that way. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about this this stretch. You you said this is an interview with the Salt Lake Tribune. You said every time, as you would drive from Colorado mm-hmm. up to Oregon, uh, every time I got to the stretch from Green River up through Soldiers Pass, something came over me, and I would often just stop and walk for hours. There's something about that area. Tell me about that. You know, it's it's true. I uh, you know, I, it's hard it's hard to explain without it making making it sound too um, ethereal. Um, but I, I was driving out there and looking towards the Mesa and, um, at one point, you know, uh, all the, all the descriptions of light, um, and sand and so on that are in the book, those are, um, a combination of, of all my experiences out there. I actually had that one experience that ends the book, um, uh, with uh, the light up just above Helper um, as you drive towards, on 191, as you drive towards uh, Salt Lake City. But um, my friend Bruce Berger wrote this wonderful book, uh, which I consider kind of source material for, uh, for mine, called The Telling Distance, Conversations with the American Desert. I actually published that book uh, when I, I was a publisher 25 years ago. And... He uh, he talks in that book about um, the quality of the of the light, and there is something about that distance that just draws you. Hmm. It just draws you in, and and you just want to become that distance. You say uh, you have uh, your your protagonist say mm-hmm. that it's uh, best in the desert. You you get the best view of the desert looking away from the the sun if you if you're uh, af- yeah. afternoon you look east you you look you look east and that that also um at king's english i'm going to read how to look at a desert sunset by bruce berger which is just a small little piece from his book the telling distance and uh uh he writes about how people try to look at the sunset with binoculars and and so on but it's the reflection of the sunset against against the geology, against the rocks and the lichen um, uh, to the east that is really spectacular. Mm. Um, and so that's you know that's that's what's behind that. And I I have actually done what he suggests in that uh, in that little piece from his book. And when you're looking at at the light, the sunset light off of the geological formations to the east, it really it really is a surreal experience. I wonder. You mentioned that last page. There's beautiful writing there. Would, would that be okay for you to read that? Do you have your book with you? Um, uh, if you, if yeah. you If you start I with do. the if you start with the I second do. paragraph, you won't reveal anything. Uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, let's not reveal anything. Uh, <laughs> Don't want to reveal too much. Have people read the book, but uh, this is this, sure. you, you talk about the light in the desert here. Sure. Uh, the first month I drove one seventeen, I decided to go to the end of the road just to say I'd done it. The pavement terminated with an abrupt edge as clean and final as if the asphalt were a piece of blackboard lopped off by a pair of industrial shears. There was no barricade or warning of any kind. The end of my world. 
It was the kind of long, average day that an ordinary miracle might slap the boredom off your face. The sun descended behind me. I got out and leaned against the front bumper and finished a bit of sandwich left over from lunch. The truck idled quietly behind me. I tilted my head and stared up the granite wall. In the blink of an eye, I was awash in an unearthly glow. It could have been a minute or 10,000 years. I forgot my name. A gust of wind swirled the light and dust into a rose-colored column that reached steadily upward until it punched a cotton candy hole through a wide patch of baby blue sky. There you go. Yeah, yeah beautiful. Um, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have more with James Anderson. His debut novel is The Never Open Desert Diner. And the plot in brief, we'll get into this and uh, meet some of the characters. Ben Jones is a single 38-year-old truck driver. He's on the verge of losing his small trucking company, uh, which will be bad for him. He loves uh, truck driving. His route takes him back and forth across one of the most desolate and beautiful regions of the Utah desert, where he meets a mysterious cellist and the embittered owner of a small diner. Uh, James Anderson will be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. And he's our guest for the hour. You can join us here at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Perhaps you've driven this so-called 117. Tell us about it. Uh, and you can join us uh, on uh, email at upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto Casper. This week on The Splendid Table, we look at the real food of Lebanon, fragrant with spices and drizzles of mysterious flower waters. And then we meet a man who's mapped out the London underground according to its sounds and how they taste. That's The Splendid Table, the show about life's appetites from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Congratulations to Samantha Olson of Ephraim, Utah for her honor of the You Serve Utah Power of Service Award. Olson was selected for the award due to her outstanding accomplishments as a volunteer. The award was presented during the Utah Commission on Service and Volunteerism bi-monthly meeting. UPR congratulates Samantha Olson for her honor of the You Serve Utah Power of Service Award. This is Terry Guy, Business Development Manager for Utah Public Radio. Underwriting Public Radio enhances a corporate image and projects quality, credibility, and stability. Separate your organization from the competition and reach a quality audience. To include UPR in your branding campaign, call 435-797-3215. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. We're talking with James Anderson. He's a debut novelist. Published his first novel uh, in his early 60s. Uh, it's got getting grave reviews, including from the New York Times and uh, others. It's called The Never Open Desert Diner, and it's set in Utah. Fictional Utah Route 117, which uh, branches off from the real uh, U.S. 191. Uh, this is near Price. And... Uh, we meet Ben Jones, who's a 38-year-old truck driver on the verge of losing his small trucking company. His route takes him back and forth across this uh, most desolate and beautiful region of the Utah desert. He meets a mysterious cellist and the embittered owner of a small diner. 
You can join us here in the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. James Anderson will read from and sign his book tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. So, James Anderson, I wonder if you have you read another passage, uh, page four. Um, this this introduces us to the well-known desert diner that uh, ah, this, yes. l- locals call the, the never-open desert diner. We'll talk about why. Maybe you can start with the uh, third paragraph, U.S. 191 there, and continue... Um, to the uh, continue the paragraph on the top of page five. Okay. Uh, let me see here. You'd think I'd have this memorized, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, uh, okay. So you wanted me to start where? Uh, the third paragraph, U.S. 191, the main highway. Okay. Yeah. U.S. 191 is the main highway north and south out of Price, Utah. North led to Salt Lake City. Due south took you to Green River and eventually Moab. The turnoff for State Road 117 is about 20 miles from the city limits of Price, 10 miles east down 117 on the left, surrounded by miles of flat, rugged nothing. You will come upon the well-known Desert Diner. From 1955 to 1987, the diner appeared in dozens of B-movies. There were the desert horror thriller movies, the desert biker mayhem movies, and the movies where someone, usually an attractive young woman, drove across the desert alone and some bad stuff happened. Once in a while, it's possible to catch one of these low-budget gems on cable. I always cheered when the diner filled the screen. My personal favorites involved atomic monsters or aliens terrorizing small-town desert locals. The locals eventually triumphed and saved the planet. Their victory was usually accomplished with little more than a car battery, a couple of Winchester rifles, and a visiting college professor who had a crazy theory and a wild, beautiful daughter. The diner was originally built in 1929. Its pale gravel driveway, antique glass bubble gas pumps, white adobe walls, and green trim made it seem familiar, almost like a home you'd known all your life but never visited. Even the most hardened, sunstruck driver slowed down and smiled. Mm, Very good. Introduced to the diner here. Uh, you've nailed the B movies, by the way. That's uh, that's the, that's the plot of all of them, I think. Yeah, so much, so much fun. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, uh, places have have histories, uh, have personal histories, and and you know, to kind of capture the the diner, it's a it's an archetype. The desert diner is an archetype. And um, uh, I, I hope I, I hope I did that because well, I've actually heard from from people who say I know exactly where that diner mm-hmm. is, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I'm sure that you know it's it's so uh, ubiquitous that that a lot of people think they they know that diner. And this diner, this diner is 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 haunted in a way, isn't it? It's uh, there's a tragedy happened there. Yes, um, and that's the story behind Walt Butterfield. Uh, he's 79 years old. He's a, an extreme loner. Uh, the thing that's interesting about the diner is, is that he keeps it absolutely perfect. Um, everything is spit-polished and, and pristine, and yet never open, mm-hmm. um, which is how it gets its name among locals, because there are billboards that, that from a long time ago that 
advertise it, and so many people had stopped that somebody spray-painted the billboard to call it the never-open Desert Diner instead of the well-known Desert Diner. Yeah, I guess a, a, a tourist, a person traveling on 191, was angry when the billboard wasn't true. <laughs> yes, well, cool drinks, pie, uh, you know the signs. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and Walt uh, stays to himself, and completely to himself. In fact, his only friend may be Ben. He has motorcycles. He has a motorcycle collection that he, he works on, uh, Walt Butterfield. Uh, and he, uh, and Ben brings in motorcycle parts. These are older motorcycles that he's collected over the years. And um, the thing about Walt is that he, um, he, he's haunted by something that happened at the diner 40 years earlier. And eventually you find out why the diner is kept in perfect condition but never open. Uh, and it really kind of goes to the heart of why, why things are the way they are for, uh, for Walt. Um, and also the idea that places have histories uh, as people have histories and there there's never one victim in a crime the crime a, a, a horrible crime like what happens uh, or happened in this novel touches people generations away and that's really what's at the heart of this story mm-hmm. and it, it it's connected up at least this in my mind here with with the, it's a kind of a desolate area off the beaten track and I guess for people who know what happened there, there there's has special resonance. But but these places have histories. This made me think. By the way, uh, there's a there's an overlook area near mm-hmm. near Vernal, mm-hmm. um, and locals know that a, a murder happened there. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I drive past it, it's it has that history for me. I don't, I don't, for that reason, I don't think I'd, you know, I don't know if I would have a reason to stay there overnight, but I don't think I would, because it, it just has this, has well, this you know, history. And, and, you know, that's, that's just it. You know, the, the things that happen in a place, uh, I think they, they extend beyond personal history, beyond human history. Uh, and um, I think the way, you know, what you were just saying, it, it colors the way people feel about about a particular place, um, and even if even if you don't see ghosts, you know there are no ghosts in my book. But you know it it creates a an atmosphere that I think I think that you can sense. Hmm. Now tell me about um, there's a mysterious woman. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, there's a funny scene where. Uh, or Ben discovers that. <laughs> so, so tell me about how Ben discovers this, and this resonated with me as well. There's this development, or, or proposed development, out in this remote area, which apparently failed, but but left one model home. Mm-hmm. Well, Ben uh, has been driving this stretch of road for 20 years. He pretty much thinks he knows it all. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, you say, well, you know, I know something like the back of my hand, and then you're surprised how little you know about the back of your hand. Uh, and he pulls over, and 
he discovers some concrete underneath the sand, and he kind of follows it up a little rise. And on the other side, he sees what he thinks are are creek beds um, all laid out, intertwined. And then he sees the model home, and he realizes that this was uh, at one time a housing development. All the streets are laid out, but all there is is a model home. And when he... Uh, when he goes down, he decides to walk down and, and take a look at it. Um, he, uh, he discovers, um, not that time, but the second time, that there's a, a woman inside the house, a young woman, who is playing a cello. But the cello has no strings. So she's pretending to play the cello. Uh, eventually you find out why she has this cello and and why it doesn't have any strings, but um, yeah, there's that there's that sense that um, the desert's going to take what the desert wants, and uh, uh, for anybody who who lives in in a region like this, you know that if you don't take care of it every single moment, um, the desert's going to take it back. Hmm. If you just joined us, we're talking with James Anderson. Uh, his novel is The Never Open Desert Diner. It's uh, set uh, near Price and uh, in that re- remote, uh, desolate, and beautiful region. Um, it, uh, the plot in brief, Ben Jones is a uh, truck driver. He's on the verge of losing his company. His route takes him back and forth across this uh, fictional uh, Utah 117. And we meet some very interesting people, including this mysterious cellist, the embittered owner of the small diner. And you're welcome to join us in this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, so, James Anderson, tell me about some of the other characters uh, interested in the Lacey Brothers. <laughs> I love the Lacey Brothers. You know, I have to tell you, these these people, as you're writing a book, uh, a novel like this, um, things unfold, and sometimes you're surprised. Um, and... The Lacey brothers uh, are these two old coots, I guess you'd call them, uh, who live in boxcars that have been welded together and then uh, have a foundation of cinder block. And um, Ben brings them uh, things uh, that they need. Uh, And uh, Ben is friendly, but not friends with uh, a lot of people like the Lacey brothers out there, people who really want to live the life that they're living, as harsh as it is. Uh, and like everybody else in this story, uh, in the novel, the Lacey brothers have a dark history. Uh, and as the novel progresses, um, you eventually find out uh, what that is. Um, but... I um, yeah, I love I love the Lacey brothers, and then there's um, John, who is an itinerant preacher. He has in Rockmuse, uh, my little imaginary town of Rockmuse. He has a uh, a church uh, of sorts uh, that is uh, in a side where a True Value hardware store has gone under, and from spring until fall, he pulls a life-size cross along the desert highway. Uh, He stops and he camps uh, 
every 10 miles or or so. Um, but John, who is, uh, for lack of a better word, sort of the Ben's spiritual advisor, although Ben probably wouldn't have called him that, um, he has his secrets too. And you know that he's doing penance for something. Hmm. Uh, and uh, um, people, people sort of accept that eccentricity. And so he's, you know, he's an interesting guy. Ben actually stops and, and talks to him, brings him water, um, and so on. So, uh, and then there's Jenny, uh, who actually turns out to be the, the, uh, uh, the heroine of the novel. She's 17, uh, uh, eight months pregnant. Um, uh, she's working nights at Walmart, she's homeless, um, and uh, she's, she's a, a fascinating character. Uh, it's funny how you use words that we know in the West uh, uh, that people from other parts of the country don't quite know what you're talking about, and um, Ben describes uh, Jenny as having sand, and out in the West, we know that means grit, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, strength and resolve and and so on. Uh, but uh, a few people have asked me, what does having sand mean? <laughs> you know, so, mm-hmm. <laughs> but Jenny, Jenny has sand. Mm. She's 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 tough and she's pragmatic. And yes, you know, she has, you know. Uh, some face piercings and her hair is multicolored and and so on but she she is making the very best life she can hmm. and ultimately she saves Ben and his company hmm. um i wonder about the uh, you know the people who who live in these sort of harsh desert regions Mm-hmm. I, I imagine it's self-selecting. Um, oh yeah. I, tell me about that. I, I imagine you've met some of these folks. I have, not exactly the ones I describe, um, but you know, there there are people who really are self-starters, uh, and um, sometimes they're the, exactly the kind of people that. Um, you really enjoy meeting, but only in in fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you don't quite want to meet them face to face because they might be a little scary. Um, and they've chosen to live the lives that they live, and those lives are are tough because you don't you don't just run out to the grocery store uh, if you get hurt um, or sick. Um, you, there is no doctor, there's no hospital nearby. Um, at one point, uh, Ben describes, um, self-reliance as being the true religion on Highway 117. Hmm. Yeah, that, and that definitely resonates, doesn't it, in, in the West? You know, it, it, it does. Um, uh, there, there's that line that Ben turns on his, on its head about uh, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And Ben says on, on 117, what doesn't kill you 
we'll kill you the next time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and and they embrace that life, mm-hmm. um, and 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 they love it in a way that I think most people just would not understand. Mm-hmm. When you do readings and such uh, back east, mm-hmm. you're I I don't know for a person who's never been to you know a stretch of highway like one seventeen. What do, what do you think the perception is? It's I'm guessing it's it's different from from here in the West, or or is it? Uh, well, I think I think out here in the West, um, we don't think of the desert as being a vacuum. We don't think of it as being truly nothing, um, uh, because there is so much there. There is wildlife. There is um, there. There's tremendous, tenacious life, uh, and I think that sometimes the perception in the East for people who've never been out there is, is that that it is just a totally barren wasteland. Um, but for for those of us who live out here and you know, most of the Western United States um, is desert. Uh, um, even Oregon, my home state, a lot of people think of it as um, uh, of Oregon having to do with rain, uh, which is true, but that's only one strip. Two-thirds of Oregon is desert, just like what I describe in in uh, uh, Utah. Hmm. So, um, but... There is so much there, and and what happens is, is that when you're not distracted um, by traffic and um, uh, horns and people and fast food places and so on, the things that really matter in life, connections, um, human relationships, um, the natural world, all of those things have an opportunity to to rise up, and um, and that's what I mean about the fullness of nothing and bringing bringing what really matters about life into sharp relief, so you can you can see it, and experience it. Does that answer your question? Yes, yeah, certainly does. Um, and you, you, your answer there just blew the premise of my next question. But well, oh, I'll, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll limp forward with it. Um, I was going to compare and contrast Oregon with the Four Corners. You split your time between the two, and I wonder what uh, what draws you to the Four Corners region. Well, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Mesa Verde, um, and you know, and uh, around um, Durango um, and Moab, and um, again. Um, the experience of being in Mesa Verde, um, way up there on that plateau where where the uh, ancient Puebloans um, had their cliff dwellings, um, the, at once there is a sense of of uh, of history, but also of timelessness, and um, I just. I'm, I'm, I'm lost in the, in the natural beauty and the, 
and the atmosphere of being there. Um, and of course, you know, the, the disappearance, you know, that's a bit of a mystery. Um, people have various theories and so on about why they built all those cliff dwellings and then, and then that culture disappeared. Um, but you know, it's, uh, it's incredible when you're up there and you look out over the entire Southwest really. Um, and it's, it, it could be a thousand years ago. It's, it's the same, it's the same view, that same sense of, of life fighting to get a foothold. Let's take another break when we come back more with James Anderson. His debut novel, The Never Open Desert Diner, is getting rave reviews, and it's out and available now. He's coming to Salt Lake City tomorrow evening, 7 o'clock, King's English Bookshop, for reading and signing. You're invited to that. You're invited to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. When we come back, I want to... uh, delve into uh, this statement. This is in the Tribune uh, interview. Uh, James Anderson says, I don't like my mysteries formulaic. And I'm uh, joining that up with a very interesting list of writers that he, uh, that he includes in his dedication page. More following the break. You spend your day, or part of it anyway, with your eyes glued to your computer or your phone. And really... You feel kind of hollow, don't you? We feel that our emotions are missing from the digital world and our digital experiences. And at Affectiva, our vision is to bring that emotion into the equation. I'm Kai Rizdal. Emotionally intelligent computers are closer than you'd think. The story next time on Marketplace from APN. Tuesday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. What kind of vegetable grows up to 50 pounds a day and weighs more than 2,000 at maturity? It must be a world record pumpkin. This Thursday on the Zesty Garden, discover what it takes to grow an orange behemoth. Then, matrophagy, literally meaning to feed on mother. Diane Alston explains how and why an arachnid mother gives of herself in the most literal sense. And on Petals and Prose, Nancy Williams explores another chapter of refuge. It's the Zesty Garden this Thursday morning at 10 from Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with James Anderson. Uh, he was born in Seattle, raised in Oregon. He's uh, a graduate of Reed College in Portland, received his master's degree in creative writing from Pine Manor College in Boston. For many years, worked in book publishing and other jobs included logging, commercial fishing, briefly truck driver. Currently divides his time between Ashland, Oregon and the Four Corners region. And he'll be at the King's English Bookshop tomorrow night at 7 for a signing and reading. The book is The Never Open Desert Diner. It's getting uh, great reviews. Uh, So one of the obstacles, I believe, uh, James Anderson, that you uh, encountered was editors who uh, wanted one specific genre here, and they felt you were all over the map, right? And you say you don't like your mysteries formulaic. Well, I don't. I mean, I like... I like um, people who, I think it's important to create a, a world. And for me, because I've read a lot of mysteries, I mean, when I was a student, um, I picked up my first paperback of John D. McDonald, his Travis McGee series that was set in Florida. And they create a world, 
they're involved in in the environment, and you get to know their friends and and um, what the world looks like to them, what they see. For John D. McDonald, you know, it was the inland waterways and and all the rampant development in Florida, um, the drying up of the Everglades, and this was back in the mid '60s, um, and uh, so it had a huge influence on me and so so did James Crumley's uh detective Milo uh Moldragovich who um is out of uh Montana but when you look at some of the others um you know Ross McDonald and and uh, Raymond uh Chandler um had um Los Angeles uh, they they made that place their own uh and that's what i and that's what i wanted to do but you know i was also influenced by uh in addition to bruce berger uh the incomparable uh terry tempest williams and barry lopez uh and gretel Ehrlich, um as well as thomas merton who translated a book called wisdom of the desert fathers uh which are sayings and stories about the second and third century Christian monks, uh, ascetics, who um, who lived in the desert uh, in the Middle East. So um, you mix that all up, and uh, uh, some of the reviews um, they just they said, well, you know, it's not exactly a genre mystery. It's not exactly a romance. It's not exactly um, about the environment. Um, it's not exactly a thriller, and yet it manages to be all of those things. And I think that there are some people that like just one flavor in their ice cream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there are those of us who like lots of different flavors. Uh, and that's that's the kind of book I wanted to write, not the sort of thing that goes from, uh, that's, intensely plot-driven, where the idea is you're trying to figure out who done it or, or, or something like that. It's really the, the journey. And, you know, I was, I, you know, I'm privileged to, to, to have known Robert Parker, uh, who wrote the Spencer series, uh, and Dennis Lehane, and, you know, they, they really make where their detective is um, come alive in in that case Boston, but you know then there's James Lee Burke, uh, who is just amazing. I mean I'm looking at my um, coveted uh, first edition here of Black Cherry Blues. These are people that make a whole world come alive, and you care about the mystery, the crime, but the reason you care about it is because of the people who are involved in in that crime so uh i think that's that's why um major publishers had a problem with this um because they just didn't know where to you know what category to put it in and uh, and like i said at the beginning of the interview i think there's really only one category that matters and that's the best writing you can do mm-hmm. 
There's one more uh, person you mentioned in the dedication. This struck me, uh, Stephen Cannell for uh, James Rockford. And, uh, yeah. and that, that struck a, a sense of place, yeah, I, I, you know, as, as you think about the series. But also, I appreciated Rockford uh, because he uh, he went against stereotype. He was he was always getting beat up. He was uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he he didn't use brute force a lot of the time. He would use his wits, that kind of thing. Oh yes, uh, and 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 he was and he was wrong, you know, and uh, uh, and he had this great relationship with his father Rocky, uh, and he had that sociopath friend Angel Martin. Uh, <laughs> Who Jim Rockford continues to be loyal to, but just doesn't trust him at all, and for good reason. And so you again, you get that that sense of of uh, Los Angeles. And I, you know, I just want to say that you know when it comes to noir literature, um, I really feel that noir uh, has always been the genre of the the oppressed and the and the marginalized. And there's so much that that uh, that can be done with it, as demonstrated by um, Dennis Lehane and uh, um, and James Lee Burke um, and um, and so many others. So I I like working in that in that vein and writing about the things that I really care about and establishing that world and characters and the characters that you that you come to love that you really care about. Well, we're out of time, uh, just enough time to tell you that uh, James Anderson will be reading from his uh, novel and uh, signing at the King's English Bookshop. That's tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. The book, which is receiving uh, great reviews, is The Never Open Desert Diner. James Anderson, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been wonderful. I appreciate it. And uh, hope you join us tomorrow for Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. Migration and travel have shaped Utah, and Utah has shaped the way we migrate and travel, literally. Over time, travel routes through Utah have tended to stay the same. Learn more after this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Utah's ruggedly beautiful landscape draws admiration and visitors, but has always posed major obstacles to travel. In the distant past, Native peoples pioneered the most forgiving paths through jumbled landforms and arid deserts, and these trails largely define the journeys made by later travelers. When trappers and explorers like Jedediah Smith and John Fremont blazed trails, they were actually following paths that had been trod by Native feet for centuries. Indeed, it was often Native peoples who showed intrepid explorers and pioneers the way. Following these same paths, the Old Spanish Trail shows the difficulties posed by Utah's landscape and the literal lengths that some would go to overcome them. In the 1830s and 40s, Unforgiving terrain and chronic conflicts with Native peoples discouraged direct travel between the Mexican cities of Santa Fe and Los Angeles. Instead, caravans of horses and mules made a circuitous trek through modern-day Utah, crossing the Colorado and Green Rivers, arcing north of the San Rafael Swell, then south again to the Mojave Desert. During the same era, heavy traffic along the overland trail system caused a search for fresh pastures and alternate routes, stimulating trail variations known as cutoffs. 
In Utah, none was more important than the 1845 Hastings Cutoff, which brought California-bound travelers through the challenging Wasatch Mountains to the West Desert Salt Flats. This route became well-trodden thanks to the tide of Mormon migration that began in 1847. Journeys along the Overland Trail system declined after the Transcontinental Railroad was completed in Utah in 1869. Permanent railroad lines tended to follow the paths of least resistance already carved by trails and wagon roads. In many places, railroads were merely a new technology layered over well-established routes. The same holds true for Utah's roads. In the early 20th century, gravel highways replicated well-established patterns of movement, and our modern interstates generally follow those same historic routes, overland trails, and the original Transcontinental Railroad. Research and writing for this episode of the Beehive Archive were done by Greg Smoke of the American West Center. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. After hearing the Symphony No. 8 by Anton Bruckner, a critic said the music provided a glimpse of the infinite. I'm Fred Child. The Dallas Symphony gives us a peek into the immensity of Bruckner's last completed symphony. We'll hear it from a concert in Dallas on the next Performance Today from APM. Tuesday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences from Utah State University. Time now is 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for the splendid table coming your way.